Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney, and I'm coming to you solo for this episode 26 because we're reviewing Akudama Drive and Carl didn't watch this anime. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. I'm excited to talk about Akudama Drive because I feel like a lot of people overlook this anime. Um, and honestly, I, I almost did too. I think this anime came out fall 2020 and I had seen a couple of things about it. It had hit some of the trending anime charts or whatever, um, the top anime that were out during that season. Um, and I was like, why am I not hearing a lot about it? Like I'm seeing bits and pieces of it on Reddit or on my anime list. Um, and I just, I never got a sense for what the show was about, but it was there. It was kind of floating around. And yeah, I just feel like in general, this is something that people overlooked um, and is something that if people gave it a chance would really be blown away by it. I think it's kind of a similar situation to Vinland Saga, which I've heard is also very much overlooked and, and a lot of people slept on that show. I feel like people are sleeping on this show as well. Usually, if I don't hear much about an anime or know much about it, if I do decide to watch it, it's because I've become intrigued enough to watch based off of the visuals. That's what happened with Rent-A-Girlfriend, um, and it's definitely what happened with Akudama Drive. The colors, the animation, the character designs had me intrigued enough to, to give it a chance. And I saw that it was only 12 episodes, so I figured if it's not good, I won't have to commit to it for that long. I can just fly through the 12 episodes and move on with my life. But holy shit, I'm so glad that I judged another book by its cover and gave this a shot. I blew through the show, all 12 episodes, in about three days and enjoyed every single minute of it. It's not the most amazing anime I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's probably not going to be one of my all-time favorites, but it's no doubt a fantastic show with cool characters and a very engaging plot. It's a wild ride that is also a feast for your eyes. I mean, the visuals are absolutely stunning in this show. And this show was destined to fail, in my opinion, because it uses so many anime tropes from the characters to the plots, etc., etc., but they did it right. The execution was spot on and they made something great even using those tropey pieces. So props to the creator, the creators. I'm not sure about the, you know, the, the team that put this together, um, but props to them. They did a fantastic job. They really made something special out of what looked to be on the surface, not that special. And that's, again, why I feel like this anime was overlooked when really it, it shouldn't be. So I'll jump in right away because there's a couple main points that I want to hit. And, and first off, I want to talk about the opening and the ending. The opening is super stylized. I mean, it's probably one of the most stylized parts of this anime. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the song personally. Like I, I enjoy listening to it, um, but it's not something I would put on my Spotify. But it's a great fit for the show. I mean, it is just spot on. It, the the essence of what this show is about. It has that, you know, cyberpunk feel to it while being really in high intensity, fast moving, and just, I don't know, pushes you forward the entire time you're listening to it, complemented by the visuals on screen. I mean, the colors and the animation are so cool. I love the use of like neon and bright colors up against like dark backgrounds which matches perfectly with the city of Kansai that the show is set in. So I think that this opening is a perfect fit 
in every way to the show itself and highlights each of the main characters very, very well. On the flip side, the ending, it's also stylized, but really I could take it or leave it. I, I enjoy the the art style of the ending, but the song didn't really capture me. It's it's pretty mellow for a show that is mostly high intensity. So I think it it's okay, but I, I could have probably gone with something a little bit better. Usually in anime, you get like the, the high intensity opening and then the more like chill, depressing ending. This is just another one of those situations, but I think the show would have benefited from a more exciting ending. The characters in Akudama Drive are probably the biggest highlight of the show. Overall, this is a cast of characters that hit on every major anime character trope. But it's so fun to see all of them come together and be forced to work together as strangers. It's it's really fun to see, for example, everyone's really amazing and unique skills up against the dumb luck of Swindler and Hoodlum. And these are not characters that you would expect to see it together in any other setting. And normally they wouldn't be together in any other setting. But, you know, as as I just mentioned, they're forced to work together. So you have to see them try to try to figure this shit out as they're going. Not only do they not know what the hell they're getting into or what this plan is or what the end goal is of this heist in the beginning of the show. They also don't understand each other. They just know that everyone else is Akudama and that's it. But first off, let's talk about the main, main character, Ordinary Person, aka Swindler. I absolutely love her story. It was very well done, super clever, and everything tied together nicely. Um, she started off as quote-unquote ordinary person and ended up embracing her Akudama name by living up to her name unintentionally. She was such a good and honest citizen that she didn't even use the 500 yen coin that belonged to Courier because it wasn't her money. Even at the cost of her good reputation and, and being labeled a criminal, she she still didn't want to, to use that. I mean, she didn't know that she was going to get yelled at by that old lady and then get deemed a criminal. But the point is, she was too honest of a person to even use the 500 yen coin that Courier told her he didn't want. But she's great. I mean, she really is just a normal person who got roped into this situation unexpectedly and made the best of it. She was always able to persuade others, which ironically, those others thought that it was her being skilled at swindling and, and they never knew whether or not to believe her. But it got me every time that she was acting very much genuinely. She was It was very obvious she was being genuine in her plans and in her interactions with other people, but everyone just thought it was part of her swindling act. I'm like, that, that all came together so well. Although I do feel like for the most part, everyone believed her throughout the show. Or, or if they didn't believe her, they still listened to her. So that was kind of one of the things where I'm like, you get those moments where doctors like, you know, I don't trust you. She like goes up to her and whispers in her ear like, I don't trust you. I know this is all part of your swindling shit. But at the end of the day, she still went along with everything that Swindler said. No one really went up against her enough to to apply the pressure and say, look, I don't believe you because this is all part of your quote unquote act as Swindler. You may have gotten like a little bit of that in the show, but I think that's something that I would have liked to see more of is those individuals challenging her because they see her as this Akudama who is all about swindling and and manipulating people to do her will, essentially. Um, so that that's one thing I would have liked to see more of is like how she overcomes that, again, unintentionally, because she's not swindling anybody. She's being very genuine. It's just, you know, that's her name, a swindler. <laughs> and to that point, she had no special powers or skills. 
But she was the most influential character of all the main characters when it came to the plot and and you know the, the city of Kansai. And I think this plays into the citizens of Kansai actually being the powerful, influential ones once they've had enough of the government and the executioners who are supposed to be the quote-unquote powerful ones in society. But I'll get to that um, in a little bit when we talk about the theme of power and government and all of that. When we reach kind of like the end portion of the show, um, Swindler cutting her hair to me was a big sign for her her character development as she was I mean immediately like right after cutting her hair she was immediately faced with actually becoming an Akudama she had to go up against those three criminals and defend herself and um, sister and she did a pretty good job although who knows if Courier didn't show up they might have died but it's just crazy to see that in that moment of cutting her hair and kind of signaling this change within her as a character she's immediately put to the test and has her first kill or two kills maybe if i remember correctly um anyway she kills at least one person and then injures another person and voila she is an official akudama in terms of her death though I didn't expect Swindler to be second to last to die. Her death was the most powerful, I feel, followed by Courier. Her death was one of the few that was honorable and self-sacrificial and was the most impactful, which I think is why we get that imagery of her dying on the cross, which is incredibly powerful. However, that's not to say that other Akudama didn't die honorable deaths, for example, Hoodlum and, and Courier. But her story started off as an ordinary citizen pretending to be an Akudama and ended as an Akudama pretending to be an ordinary citizen, which I love. I love that she came full circle in that way. Her, her story and in, in just in general is, is so fascinating to me. And I, I really appreciate that they gave Swindler a real Akudama card at the very end in that last episode when she embraced being an Akudama. Um, I love that she was always able to swindle or rather persuade others and inspire others, even when she didn't realize it or have any intention to do it. And I think... I read somewhere, and I, I probably should have double-checked this, but um, I think that in the credits, her name shows up as Ordinary Person, but at the last episode, they change it to Swindler. I'll have to double-check that. If anyone knows for sure, let me know. Then you have Courier. Courier is your typical cool dude. He's a pretty flat character, to be honest, up until the last few episodes when he decided to help Swindler and the kids and then sacrifice his own life. He's very skilled with a gun, but without his bike, he falls to the bottom of the list, in my opinion, in terms of skills and fighting ability. But he knows that, which is why he's always focusing on getting his bike back during fights. I mean, he he died staying true to his word, that he would finish the job even if it meant dying, that he never fails when it comes to delivering something. I love that. I, I love that he and many of the main characters fulfilled their goals um, not all of them I would say but a lot of them did like just like Swindler did Courier did as well and side note I shipped Swindler and Courier the entire show so those last moments between the two of them in the final episode were very very cute I really appreciated that and you know me I love my male Sundere so Courier is one of my favorite characters then we have Hacker um, and Hacker I think 
he's another one who achieved his goal in the end, but more like in the very beginning because he stuck to his desires and took that opportunity to go to Kanto. He he wanted from the very beginning to to explore Kanto, understand what that was all about, see a different world from where he was, you know, stuck in in Kansai. Um, and he did that very early on. And we find out at the end that it really wasn't worth it, but he did it. And that's what's important. But overall, Hacker was an interesting character. I mean, I think he was probably one of the most innately good Akudama. Um, yeah, he does a lot of hacking, but I didn't really see him doing a lot of killing necessarily. It was more like he was just hacking, I don't know, big companies or, you know, the government or things like that. Um, so I, I feel like he was less, obviously less violent than others. It's not to say he wasn't violent at all. I think he had those little robots floating around with him that could do enough killing for him to be a true Akudama. But I would say he's on the more mild side of all the Akudama that we have in this show. I also don't know why it took him so long to hack his exploding collar thing. Like, I, that's one of the first things I was thinking was, can't he just hack that motherfucker off? Like, just take it off. You're this amazing hacker. Just just take the damn thing off. And then he waited until the very last second when he wanted to take the, the Shinkansen to, to Kanto. And then he decided to do it. I'm like, you could have done that earlier. You could have done that with everybody and just blown this whole thing out of the water. But that would have, I think, made the plot a little too messy. So that's fine. Whatever. Also, I will say his return at the end of the show was predictable and his death was anticlimactic. It was just lackluster. He came back and I, I called that from a million miles away. I think we all did. And I've said in other podcast episodes, like if you don't see a character die on screen, there's a good chance they're still alive. And sometimes there's those rare moments where they do die on screen and yet they still come back to life. So it, you never know what to expect. But I think this one was kind of expected. But yeah, his death was just lackluster. I I don't know. He he did the hacking thing. He had like death by redemption, I guess, or had a self-sacrificial death um, because he wanted to make sure that Swin was able to save the kids. And that was amazing because, again, I think he's more of the innately good type of Akudama than the others. But yeah, he just kind of like fizzled out. He like literally fizzled out. And that's just how I felt about his his death and his ending. It just kind of fizzled out at the end. I don't really know what to say about it. Like, I don't really have much to say about it. And I think that's a, a, a big sign as to how anticlimactic his death really was. There also wasn't a lot of struggle there. Like, he he was hacking away to get closer to the kids. And then he got hit by some stuff. And, like, pieces of him got blown away. But I really didn't feel a big challenge. Like, there wasn't this major thing for him to overcome. It was just endure. Endure until you're able to hack all the way into the ki- uh, to the kids and then you're, you're good to go. But he took on enough damage where he died and he was able to save Swindler, the kids, and Courier, and they appreciated him. And at least he had, I guess, a happier ending than maybe some of the other characters. <laughs> Next, we have Doctor. And to me, Doctor was the most unique character in terms of abilities. On the surface, she's your typical psycho serial killer, but being able to stitch herself back up is so cool. It defies all logic. Like, how does she do that and and survive? Like, that, that literally is not a thing. But she's able to do it. And we've seen other characters, again, like, like Brawler and Hacker and stuff. These are tropey type of characters. But I would say she's on the more unique end of all the Akudama in this show. 
she's also i mean pretty intelligent if you think about it like hacker is incredibly intelligent when it comes to hacking she's also incredibly intelligent when it comes to medicine because i don't think there's any other characters in the show that are able to stitch somebody back up after being sliced in half and she's doing it to herself so that that's pretty amazing props to her her voice acting was a bit weird though she sounded very nasally the whole time and it was just odd to me she had this coolness to her voice or her the way she spoke but she just sounded like she was talking through her nostrils the whole time i don't know how to describe it like it was just really nasally and like like she wasn't breathing right <laughs> while she was talking i don't know what it was like it, it wasn't bad voice acting it just sounded weird to me so every time she opened her mouth i got kind of taken out of the show a little bit because i was like oh wait what's going on with your voice <laughs> stop talking like that like you could have a really perfect voice for this character if you didn't sound like you were talking through your nose i don't know i can't describe it but i think you you may understand what i mean and at the end she ended up betraying the group um i didn't expect it so i'm not surprised there was a betrayal in the show especially among the akudama i just wasn't sure who to expect it from and i i don't think i initially really thought doctor would be the one to um to betray the group although it makes perfect sense because the idea of immortality that these kids possess that's perfect for someone like her a doctor to to want to hone in on and want to understand more She's the betrayer of the group. That's fine, whatever. I mean, it could have been any of them, really. They're all Akudama. They're all technically, quote unquote, evil characters or bad characters or, or bad people. I don't know what you want to call it, but that's fine. No big deal that she was the betrayer. I think it, it made sense. When it comes to Brawler, I would say he's one of the more lovable characters, which is weird because he's a, a big muscular dude, but I found him to be very endearing. He's your typical dumb jock, the character who's less brains and more brawn. But I, I just loved everything about Brawler. I just loved that he was so carefree. Um, if anyone's watching Jujutsu Kaisen, I guess tiny spoilers for that show. He reminds me of like Toto from from Jujutsu Kaisen because he's the same way. Like he just wants to fight people and that's all that matters to him. Or if you've watched Vinland Saga, again, tiny, tiny spoilers for that. It's like Thorkel. He's the same exact way. He just wants to fight. He just wants to flex on everybody and be the most superior character. And Brawler is just that. He is that trope embodied in this show. I really loved how Brawler was so easily fooled and motivated by Hoodlum. I mean, the whole Hoodlum Brawler bromance was amazing. And speaking of Hoodlum, I think he was in the same boat as Swindler in that he got roped into this whole mess at the prison. He embraced it a little bit faster than everyone or than than she did because He's technically an Akudama, but he's only sentenced to four years. So he's like a baby Akudama. <laughs> but, you know, he was like, I'm here. I'm just going to deal with this because I don't want to seem weak and then get killed. I also realized halfway through the show that Hoodlum looks kind of like the Joker. And maybe that's where his character design is influenced from. But he's got green hair. He's got the purple pinstripe suit with a yellow shirt underneath. So he has kind of that Joker look to him, whether or not that was intentional. But I found Hoodlum to be the the main comic relief of this show. I, I enjoyed his character a lot. He was just silly and goofy and, and very much a coward, but he also had great character development towards the end because he gained some bravery after Brawler was killed. Um, even though he was, you know, kind of using him to a certain degree, I think he did really develop this true bromance with Brawler. And I think Hoodlum felt guilt for manipulating him and using him 
um, and and all that because he did seem genuinely upset when Baller died and to the point where he gained some bravery and decided to take out the executioner chick's eye. And last but not least among the Akudama, we have Cutthroat, who is very much the Yandere character of this cast. Um, he is weird and creepy and crazy, I guess somewhat lovable if you think about the way he wants to protect Swindler, but on the flip side of that, it's crazy that he only wanted to protect her so that he could be the one to kill her. It makes perfect sense, but I didn't see that one coming. I was curious the whole show as to why he was so obsessed with her, and I didn't quite understand it, but once they revealed everything at the end, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes complete sense. Like, he's incapable of really loving or caring for anybody. Swindler being the one that he finally cares for doesn't really make any sense. So it being the one that he wanted to kill the most makes more sense for his character. I did really like his last episode. I think they called it The Shining. I think that was the episode title. And it did have that iconic scene from The Shining. But speaking of that whole last episode, while Swindler continues to grow as the only person who successfully killed Cutthroat, I do think it was super unrealistic that she did that. He's incredibly OP, slicing through enemies like they're nothing, even some executioners, I think. But then by some fluke or yet another moment of dumb luck for Swindler, she's able to kill him, something that nobody else is able to do. Like he, he was untouchable until that point. So I think this was definitely a case of plot armor for Swindler. It makes sense because... I don't know, like how else would she survive if she didn't kill him? But I think there could have been some other way that, that he could have gone out, some some other way that was more realistic. Because I kind of maybe a little bit rolled my eyes at that scene, like, yeah, okay, Swindler of all people was able to kill him. So now for the non-Akudama characters. In terms of brother and sister, I really don't have too much to say. They are also, again, very tropey in the sense that, you know, they're, they're kids who are experimented on and they don't understand the world and they're kind of, you know, at a loss of, of like where to go now that they've got gained their freedom. They just are thinking, you know, let's, let's go to the fucking moon, I guess. That, that makes sense. I mean, if you're immortal, like maybe that would work, but also that would be an incredibly painful existence, I imagine, living in the, the empty vacuum of space. Oh, well, maybe the moon's not totally empty. I don't know. I don't know anything about space, but I imagine it's not very comfortable to live up there without the proper gear. But I do find them very endearing characters because they just want to protect not only themselves but protect other people as well by removing themselves from existence essentially they can't die it seems so they're just trying to find another way to get away from their really sad fate of just being some sort of thing for Kanto to leech off of I don't know the, the whole that whole Kanto thing was a little bit confusing to me which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit and finally we have the executioners there was that concept that was thrown at us about the executioners. I think it was the the head lady of the executioners telling um, Pupil after she lost Master that um, the executioners are just like the Akudama, except for that one thing that sets them apart, which is their feelings for others, their, their ability to care for others. Um, both of them, Akudama and executioners, are willing to die but dying means you can't protect others. So it's it's similar to like Cutthroat and his want to protect Swindler, except in this case, it's more like his end goal is to protect her so that he can be satisfied in killing her versus like the executioners who are willing to die because they want to protect others and don't want others to die. 
So it's it's like kind of parallel, but not really parallel. I get what they're saying, though, in terms of like the executioners are different than the Akudama because their whole thing is to protect other people, even if it means dying. But really, it's not worth it for them to die because they can't protect other people. But it's just funny because she says that. And then several episodes later, she deems those who their job is to protect as Akudama themselves because it's no longer convenient for her to protect them because they're rioting and they're pushing back against the executioners and the government. I feel like the whole relationship between master and pupil kind of fell flat for me. I felt like master really was the the shining character in that duo and that pupil was set up to really step into his shoes, but it just didn't work out that way. Like she she had her own she became I guess a master and then had her own pupil but didn't care about that pupil she just wanted revenge for what happened to her master and I think about that and I'm like I don't know it just they they set it up to be this big thing where she has this major character development and and realizes what it means to be a master and, and what it means to be responsible for someone who's learning from you. But she just never turned out that way. And she was kind of selfish in, in her actions and her desire to get revenge. I did appreciate how she even started to have that gray space of, you know, what is good versus evil when it comes to the Akudama versus, you know, anybody else. Because she started to feel sympathy and hesitation towards the Akudama during the Shinkansen scene. I think she not being a master fully was able to kind of question the directives she was given as an executioner versus master who this is all he's known and he's reached a certain level of like responsibility that he needs to kill these akudama no matter what and he never really questioned whether or not what they were doing as executioners was really righteous was really right in the end so i did like that we got a little glimpse into her hesitations and her questioning everything that she was she's been told but again that that's another thing that kind of fell flat because she never really like followed through on it she just kind of was surprised in the end and then i don't know got blown up or something when the tower got blown up or you know she just survived and lived her life who knows but yeah those two things when it comes to the executioners specifically with pupil fell flat for me. I would have liked to see those come full circle, but I get it. They're not the main characters. So maybe we just in 12 episodes don't have enough time to invest in that. So with all of that said, I do want to list my favorite Akudama and I would have to say my number three favorite Akudama is Swindler. My number two favorite is Hoodlum. He's just, I love him. He's so funny. And my number one favorite is Courier. Yes, largely because, again, I am a huge fan of Maelson today, but also just because I found his character to be really cool. And anytime he was on screen, I really enjoyed watching him. There wasn't a lot that I was frustrated by with his character or his decisions or actions. So I think he was just a great character overall to watch. Even if he was a little flat in the beginning, he was still enjoyable to watch. Moving on to the visuals and the animation with the show. I won't dive too much into this because I think I've kind of already touched on this a lot, but the show is super stylized. I get this Borderlands meets cyberpunk feel from this show. And really, it's just this visually stunning animation style with vivid colors that really brings this whole world to life and pairs really well with this fucking wild ride of a show that has tons of action sequences. I mean, I think about the fight between Master and Brawler, and I mean, talk about a feast for your eyes. Like, you're watching this really cool fight scene, 
and in the background and all around them is just like this intensity of colors coming at you. I'm like, this is so much fun to watch. I really enjoyed it. That was probably my favorite fight of, of all of them. But this one was like all around just an amazing fight. And I think it was also up for um, best fight in anime for the anime awards. So props to that one. We'll see if it wins. If it does, very much deserving. This show also had just the right amount of gore. Like I knew going into it that it was probably going to be a gory anime when I read the synopsis. And I think it was like just the right amount. It wasn't too little. It wasn't too much. It was spot on. But what I will say is the censorship was so dumb. It was it was really frustrating for me. You, you get that one moment in the beginning of the show when we're learning about Courier and that chopped head comes flying from the sky. And it's like a huge black shadow on the screen like the whole thing is just completely blurred out or when cutthroat slices through people and it's like a giant white or black streak across the screen it's like i want to know what's under those black shadows okay i want to see the gore like we know what we're getting into when we're watching this just give us the uncensored version i watched this on hulu and i was like why is this shit censored so i was like looking for anywhere else that had this show that wasn't censored. I was like, is it on Crunchyroll? Is it on Netflix? Like, where can I find this shit uncensored? And it was nowhere. So it's a good excuse for me to rewatch the show or at least rewatch those scenes so that I can see it in all of its gory glory. And normally I don't rewatch anime, but I would do it again just to see this in its full context, like the full gore of what was intended for this show. And it's also a great story and it's only 12 episodes, so it would be an easy watch. Shifting over to the plot and the storyline and the themes of this show, I think it struck a really great balance of humor and action. I just, I found myself in every single episode, like invested in all of the action-packed scenes that it gave us while also finding it to just be a fun watch because of all the humor. And that's one of the reasons, again, that Hoodlum is my second favorite Akudama is because he was that comic relief that I very much appreciated. The biggest surprise for me of the show is the plot itself. It, it just went from action-packed heist to changing society and overthrowing the government. The world building and the plot just took a completely different direction, but didn't feel like it was it was coming out of left field. Like It, it felt like the transition went really well and, and was done very nicely. But yeah, I, I really did not expect a show that started off about a heist job with a gang of criminals to end like this. It did a 180 and became very intense with a more intricate story, making you question what truly is good versus evil. Like I thought I was gonna, again, watch a fun wild ride and it was a fun wild ride even in the second half, but just with so much more emotion and so much more questioning everything and so much more like pushing you as an audience member to to feel conflicted about the Akudama and the Executioners. And again, like who's the good one in the end and who's the evil one in the end? Are any of them good? Are any of them evil? These are the questions I was left with because the Akudama are essentially criminals, but when those in power start to act the same, they become no different from those criminals. Like for example, at first I thought Swindler was obviously at the at that point, the only caring one because she's the only one who's not really an Akudama. But as the show progressed and the and the story started to develop, I learned that not all the Akudama are totally unfeeling or uncaring and that she's not the only one who can be genuine about something. And on the flip side, you learn that all the executioners 
aren't exactly feeling or caring. They can sometimes be cold-hearted and, and disconnected from those they're supposed to be saving and I guess just kill all of them. So really the, the whole point is there are two sides of the same coin. It just depends on one's perspective. And speaking of coins, we have that coin motif throughout the entire show. And I think the coin symbolizes that even the most insignificant, unexpected things can make the biggest difference. The coin, I feel, is a reflection of Swindler and her being the catalyst that changed everything for Kansai, even though she started off as an ordinary person. She, she also fulfills her initial goal of returning the coin to Courier, symbolizing her growth that no matter what shit came her way, as a result of picking up that coin, she was still able to fulfill that goal. Plus her other goal, which is also very important, of protecting the kids. But let me say that Courier did fucking warn Swindler that picking up a drop coin is bad luck. Okay, like he knew this from experience as we learned at the end of the show. And he definitely wasn't wrong. And at least Swindler acknowledges that. But damn, had she not picked up that coin, she would just be sitting pretty right now in her apartment, probably watching all the shit go down on the news. Or who knows, maybe that none of that would have even happened. They may have just done their heist job and then the kids go to the moon and then that's it for the show. One of the things I definitely want to call out is that no one in the show has a real name and we're not really given any backstories on them, except for a little bit with Swindler and Courier. Like, I love that. I love that no one in this show actually has or uses a real name. And this is a huge risk that they're taking because it can be very difficult to feel connected and invested in a show when you know little to nothing about the characters. And this kind of ties back in with what I was saying earlier um, in this podcast episode that the show I thought would be destined to fail because it uses a lot of tropes and all that stuff. And I think this is another piece of that puzzle is like, if you think about it, like, this could have just really ruined everything by not feeling connections to those characters and people just falling off of the show because of that. But they did this so well by making the current day Akudama interesting enough where we didn't need to know their backstories to know the type of people that they are. Even when we do get backstory for Courier, it honestly felt meaningless because by that point, we already knew him. It felt like his backstory was more in service to the coin motif rather than connecting us to his character. Like, I already loved Courier at that point. You didn't need to tell me all his backstory. I mean, like, that's that's good to know, I guess. Like, now I get why the coin is bad luck to him or why he says picking up a drop coin is bad luck. But I didn't need all of that. It's fine they gave it to me. But again, I didn't need it because I liked his character by that point. And I found that whole concept of not giving any names or backstories is just like, so unique because backstories are everything in anime like it's so much a thing in anime that if someone gets a backstory in the middle of a show kind of at a, a very pivotal point for them it's sometimes a sign that they're gonna die like that's how big backstories are for anime so the fact that they went this route I'm, I'm so impressed that they did it so well and that I love these characters despite not having the typical things I need to feel invested in them. They showed me that I can be invested in characters through other means, even just seeing what they're currently doing current day. And before I get into the ending, I do want to quickly mention that those educational segments that they infused throughout the episodes, um, where you have like the the two little cartoon characters and they're telling you all about Kansai and, and Kanto and all the stuff, like that is such a cool way to do world building. I... At first, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, what are you showing me right now? You're breaking me out of this immersion. But then it just became part of the show, like a natural part of the show. 
And I just thought it was so smart. Like, this is another thing that I think could have caused this show to fail because I've said it in other podcast episodes, when you're spoon-fed information as as the viewer, it can be very off-putting. And I don't want to be told that something is the way it is. I want to be shown that something is the way that it is. Like, I don't want to be told that this character is important or strong or whatever. I want to be shown that. Like, I want to be convinced. But here it's like they're literally spoon-feeding us this world-building information and it just worked. I don't know why. I, I can't just, I was trying to put my notes together. And I'm like, I don't know how to describe why this works. But I think maybe just the uniqueness around having like a, an educational segment and it being kind of like the propaganda that those in Kansai are, are, are seeing every day. I think maybe that's why it works so well. I, I'm not really sure like what I can put my finger on that, that made this work. But again, it was another thing that, that I think would have caused the show to fail because you're spoon feeding me information versus showing me things. But man, they, they did it and it worked. So again, props to the team. They did a fantastic job. And finally, I want to talk about the ending. Holy crap. What a finale. Beautifully animated and so powerful. I just think it was a perfect way to end the show. And on that theme of being destined to fail based on like the choices that the, the writer or the creator of the team makes, normally an ending like this where the main characters die, like all of the main characters die, especially after I've become emotionally invested in them, after watching them develop and, and learning more about who they are, it makes me oftentimes feel empty and sad on some level. And I think other other weebs can relate to this. I mean, you, you see those memes out there. It's like when your, your favorite character or the main character dies and you're just like dead inside because of it. I think that this was another thing, at least for me personally, that could have caused the show to, to not be such a hit with me. But I think it didn't end up that way. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think all the main characters dying had that kind of negative impact on me because each death had meaning. It had purpose for those characters. Or if it didn't have meaning, it was at least a death that was very much justified based on their actions. So it, it almost felt right or at least okay that each of them died because of the way in which they died and the impact it had on themselves, on other characters, or the overall story. So for example, Brawler's death on the surface could have been seen as like pointless or wasteful, but for him, it had meaning. For him, it was the exact way he would have wanted to die, fighting a tough enemy like Master. He even died smiling. I mean, they took that moment to zoom in on his face, like show us that shot of his face of him smiling. So his death not only had meaning to himself, it also had impact on Hoodlum because after they bonded, this is what drove Hoodlum to make the decision to um, be brave first off and then also to self-sacrifice at the end, um, protecting Swindler. So it's really saying something when every single main character dies and the ending is still great. And I keep saying it over and over again, like this show would have been destined to fail if like all the main characters die and then you just feel unsatisfied at the end of it but the meaning behind each of their deaths was the perfect way to kind of send them off and it made me as the viewer feel more comfortable with that type of ending one of the things i liked a little bit less about the ending was that whole canto concept and how they kind of abandoned it at the end leaving it open-ended um side note i realize i'm saying like canto sometimes and saying canto other times I think it's because I always think like Pokemon Kanto region. So if I'm flip-flopping between the two, I apologize. But anyway, the whole Kanto concept um, just seemed like it fizzled out at the end. I get that the society within Kansai is the focus of the second half, but they spent so much time 
hyping up Kanto to the point where even Hacker was interested in in going to it and seeing what it was really like. And then we see it and it's this this weird conglomerate of like all this knowledge that that Kanto has or all the people of Kanto. I can't even describe what it was. I feel like it was just so rushed in terms of like telling us what Kanto actually was. Um, and they just they like told us really quick and then kept focusing on the kids. So it's like, I don't know, they, they just rushed through it and it was on to the next thing or rather back to the story of the kids and trying to get them to their their freedom, essentially. So I feel like they could have either spent more time focusing on Kanto and what that really was or spent less time hyping up Kanto so that we were less disappointed, or at least I was less disappointed when they finally gave us the big reveal. And that also kind of goes hand in hand with Hacker's death being so anticlimactic because I was expecting this big thing at the end, this big major challenge with whatever or whoever Kanto is. And you, you didn't really get that at the end. So I, I would have liked to see that been done differently, but I don't necessarily think that they should have sacrificed any of the storyline about the kids and, and getting them their freedom. So that's that to me is the more compelling and, and more important story to follow. So will there be a season two? I think this is a, a question I came across a lot when I was kind of doing some reading up on the show after finishing it. And it sounds like there hasn't been any hints toward a season two. I mean, it did just air fall 2020. But I kind of personally hope there isn't a second season. I know some people are saying, you know, a, a second season would be great because we can follow brother and sister now that they've reached um, wherever it was they were going. I can't remember the name of it. But to me, this is a single short story with a fantastic ending. And it should just stay the way it ended. Like I know having brother and sister reach that next location opens it up to a lot of possibilities. But they're not really the character's who I felt most compelled by. They're not the characters I felt most invested in. And those characters that I'm talking about are all dead now. So I think it would be a very different show. You could maybe do like a spinoff of Akudama Drive that follows a brother, uh, that follows brother and sister. But really, I, I don't think this show needs a season two. And I'm almost worried that if they had a season two, it may negatively affect the overall impact that the show has. But yeah, and I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it with this. And this is what I wrote on our Twitter page. Um, Akudama Drive is a wild ride with a perfect ending. This is an anime that simply doesn't need a season two. And I really hope that more people watch this show. I, I am hopeful that, you know, maybe there'll be enough traction or you know, after chatter about this show that more people will watch it and give it the time it really deserves. As I said in the beginning, it's not going to be, you know, the most influential anime of 2020, or it's not going to be, you know, many of our like favorite anime of all time, but it is such a good show. It's a fantastic watch with really cool characters, amazing visuals, awesome music, all neatly packaged in a perfect set of 12 episodes where you don't feel like anything drags or you don't feel like anything is rushed or that you're missing out on something or even really feeling like you want to see more. I mean, that's that's huge to me that that I don't feel like I need to see more. I want to see more. I want that season two. Like this, this was great. It was perfect. And I will take it for what it is and I'll probably rewatch it at some point, which is very, very rare for me to do. 
So yeah, with that, this is a show that I genuinely loved watching and I'm very thankful that I gave it a chance and I highly recommend that you watch it. Although I suspect that many of you who are listening to this podcast episode have watched it because it's full of spoilers, Um, but you know, definitely recommend it to all of your weeb friends because this is a show that I feel needs and deserves more visibility, more viewers and more traction. And that wraps up episode 26 of Strictly Anime. New episodes premiere every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central. You can follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series. And check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you can reach out to us to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly JoJo, our other podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.